We'll hear argument now in number 916382, Robert Wayne Sawyer versus John Whitley Warden. Mr. Walker. Chief Justice, may it please the court. Robert Sawyer's mental disorders were well documented when he went on trial for his life in a Louisiana courtroom. Hospital records showed that Sawyer had consistently been diagnosed with chronic brain damage and mental retardation. These records could have been obtained and presented to the jury with the ease of licking a postage stamp but Sawyer's trial lawyer neglected to do so. Thus, the jury which condemned Sawyer to die was unaware of the fact that he had chronic brain damage and was mentally retarded. Sawyer presented this indisputably critical evidence in a successive habeas corpus petition, claiming that his trial lawyer performed ineffectively under the Sixth Amendment. But the he, pre he presented those in both the first and the second habeas petition of that, ineffective assistance claim? That's correct, Your Honor. Technically, we're speaking here with a successive claim, and that is to say that the claim was presented in the initial petition but was not supported with the hospital records we refer to here today. Were these claims exhausted in the state courts? Yes, they have been. Uh, on state collateral? or Yes, on state collateral. And, and uh, how were they disposed of? I, I take it they were denied. They were denied on the merits. After a hearing? There was no hearing on the second petition. Well, the hospital well, why, why, did they de why did they deny? They denied on the merits with no reasons. On the merits? That's correct. It wasn't a procedural default? It was not a procedural default. Well, do we know, uh, do we know why they denied? Did they, was it just a... Denied on the merits is the ruling of the state trial judge and uh, state Supreme Court in the exercise of its discretionary jurisdiction uh, declined to exercise jurisdiction and denied on the merits. In what proceeding was the, uh, were the hospital records first annexed? The first uh, annexation of hospital records, Justice Kennedy, was in the successive state post-conviction. In the proceeding. second state proceeding? That's correct. The second state collateral proceeding? That's right. The Fifth Circuit... And that was just summarily denied also? That's correct. Was the first state collateral proceeding summarily denied too? The first state collateral proceeding resulted in an evidentiary hearing in the trial court, in the sentencing court. On, on the uh, uh, ineffective assistance of counsel? There was an ineffective assistance of counsel claim then, Chief Justice. The essence of that claim was that trial counsel uh, had not been barred for two years. Um, there is a two-year requirement for capital uh, defenders in indigent cases in Louisiana. So there was no extensive evidentiary showing made. As but there was no uh, specific allegations of how he was delinquent. There were some, but they were record-based, Your Honor. They were not based on uh, allegations that he neglected to investigate the case. And, and, what, and did there, was an opinion written? From the state post-conviction denial? The first one. No. I would add, though, that even in that proceeding, the state Supreme Court uh, denied review by a vote of four to three, but there was no opinion that was generated. I mean, they, they could have put in evidence at that point about... Uh uh, his incompetencies apart from uh, performance at trial, right? That's correct. There was, they just did not. That's right, uh, Justice Scalia. There was an allegation that he had not effectively investigated the case. Um, and in fact, there was an allegation that although he knew Sawyer was in a mental hospital, 
Uh, he did not present the court with any evidence about that commitment. And in fact, when the successive claim came, claim came before uh, the federal district court, uh, the federal district court faulted, I'm sorry, not the successive claim, when the initial claim came before the federal district court, uh, the district court adopted the opinion of the magistrate. The magistrate faulted initial collateral counsel uh, for not demonstrating what the records would have showed. Now, when the successive claim was dismissed by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, the Fifth Circuit fashioned a standard for reviewing successive claims which forecloses any constitutional challenge to a death sentence in a successive posture unless the constitutional claim carries with it a challenge to all the aggravating factors relied on by the jury. So you, you agree that, that you couldn't satisfy the cause and prejudice? We cannot demonstrate cause, Justice White. Yes, and so uh, you must rely on the... Uh, on the uh, Fundamental miscarriage of justice. Yes. Factual mm-hmm. innocence. That's correct. Of the death penalty. We submit that this Court's fundamental miscarriage of justice doctrine will be rendered meaningless if the Fifth Circuit's rigid and inequitable eligibility test is upheld and Sawyer is denied the opportunity to prove the claims in his successive petition. Before I turn to a discussion of the standard uh, developed by the Fifth Circuit uh, and Sawyer's alternative proposed standard, I'd like to spend uh, a brief minute discussing the two views of Robert Sawyer that emerged from this record. The first view, of course, is the view that was presented to the jury in this case. The picture of Robert Sawyer that the jury considered was a picture of a person portrayed by psychiatrists and even his own lawyer as a sociopath, a person who has the ability to control his behavior but freely chooses to engage in conduct harmful to others, a person who beat up and ultimately set Fran Arwood on fire because he likes to do those things, a person who had been in a mental hospital one time, quote, for no reason, A very different picture of Robert Sawyer emerges from the evidence presented in support of the successive habeas claim. That picture of Robert Sawyer is a picture of a person who has been committed twice in his life to mental hospitals and, in fact, had been declared on one occasion incapable of competing for for employment in the outside world. For that Robert Sawyer, the world is a very confusing place. And when that Robert Sawyer arrived back at his residence the day the homicide was committed, he was confronted with a terribly confusing situation. Because after entrusting the care of his adopted children to Fran Arwood, the babysitter, he thought one of them had been drugged. Now, Robert Sawyer's world is a very menacing world, one where people are constantly out to get him. A normal person may not have thought that that child was drugged, but Robert Sawyer thought that child was drugged. Because Robert Sawyer sometimes sees problems where they don't exist because of his disabilities. And Robert Sawyer couldn't think this problem through. His his mind doesn't work this way. His mind won't work that way. His mind became clouded with rage, and he exploded, his rage feeding on itself, and he beat and brutalized Fran Arwood. Now, there is evidence in this record now, and I refer to the Brady claim, 
that indicates that Sawyer, in fact, did not participate in the burning of Fran Arwood. That is the evidence in the successive petition, and obviously it paints a very different picture of Robert Sawyer's culpability in a picture which would be presented and would have been presented if the case had been litigated effectively by trial counsel. One quick, uh, quick uh, review of the medical evidence presented in the successive petition. We have records of Sawyer's two commitments to mental institutions and references to a third um, treatment at, at an outpatient clinic in Tennessee. City of Memphis hospitals, discharge diagnosis, chronic brain syndrome with unknown cause, manifested by mild mental retardation and abnormal EEG with behavioral disturbances. Western State Mental Hospital, similar diagnosis, incompetent. Recent evaluations in 1990 corroborate those older historical diagnoses, same diagnoses, mental retardation, organic brain damage. Mr. Walker, you're, you're, you're not asserting that your client was innocent by reason of insanity, are you? That's not an issue in this litigation because in part of uh, Louisiana's rigid um, insanity law, Your Honor. It's the McNaughton right-wrong test. So he is guilty of the crime? He is guilty, but we believe guilty of second-degree murder because under Louisiana law, uh, in order for one to be found guilty of first-degree murder, the murder must have been committed while the offender was gauged, engaged in the commission of another aggravated felony, in this case, the arson. Well, then, then you say he is innocent of the crime for which he was convicted. Well, that's correct. I thought you meant because of the mental state evidence. Mm -hmm. Are you, uh, did you make that claim before the lower courts? The, the Brady claim was made before the lower and, court. And that as a result, he was guilty of only second-degree murder? That's correct, and the, and the Fifth Circuit addressed that. If I may move on to the question of eligibility, the integrity of the concept of eligibility. Let, let, me, let me ask you a question, if, if I may, Mr. Walker, on, on the same subject. We're just Let's say that in uh, Sawyer's first federal habeas petition, he brought an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, and the court denied it because he'd failed to show prejudice. Prejudice, I take it, being an element of the ineffective assistance of counsel claim. Then he brings a second federal habeas petition. He brings another ineffective assistance of counsel claim. Uh, what, has to, what does he have to show in order for the court to examine the merits of the successive claim under the miscarriage of justice, an actual innocence exception, that he wouldn't have had to show uh, in showing prejudice the first time? Let me move to a discussion of our standard, Chief Justice. Under our can, proposal, can, you, can you answer my question? Yes. Under our proposal, first he would have to show a factually inaccurate sentencing profile, and then, to respond directly to Your Honor, he would have to show, under either our proposal, a fair probability that the outcome would have been different. That's drawn from Kuhlman. But we recognize that this Court may um, feel it desirable to, to strengthen or rigidify that standard because it's admittedly... Isn't that just about the same thing as he has to, sh is the prejudice element of, of Strickland? It is, Your Honor, and that's why we have also... So it really, it, it, the actual innocence thing really means almost nothing if you take that view. I beg to differ. Let me qualify that. If you take that view, perhaps that's correct, except that under our standard, one doesn't just look to the burden of proof, but to the nature of the claim. And in this case, the subset of Strickland errors that would be cognizable under this exception would be a very small subset not the broad array of, he should objected to this testimony, he should have objected to that exclusion of a death-qualified juror. Our standard, Chief Justice, uh, is a the fair probability standard, but we also endorse a much more strict standard that was on the table in Strickland, 
One of the standards that was on the table in Strickland um, before the court in, in trying to define what an appropriate prejudice standard was in that context was the strict, as it was described, the strict outcome determinative standard, more probable than not. Now, Johnson versus Singletary, this, the uh, decision of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which of course also adopts the eligibility um, concept as the definition of death innocence, we believe has a very um, uh, inf uh, persuasive dissenting opinion, joined I think by four justices. Justice uh, Judge Anderson, writing for the dissenters, said, look, we got to recognize here the state's interest in finality, but we also have to recognize that some prisoners are entitled to be, um, to be freed up from the constraints of cause, and pre of cause and prejudice. We believe a standard that is faithful to both of those principles is the more probable than not standard, Chief Justice, which is more probable than not that but for the jury's consideration of a fundamentally distorted view of the defendant's culpability, that it's more probable than not that the trier of fact or the sentencer would not have voted death. Uh, they, that the jury would not have found him guilty? No, we're oh. talking about the sentencing phase. Well, I know, but how about the guilt? The standard that emerges from this court's miscarriage cases in the liability phase, Kuhlman, is fair probability. Well, but there wouldn't be a fair probability that he would not have been found guilty of the crime charge. That Sawyer would not have been found yeah. guilty? We believe that there is a fair probability that considering the Brady violation, he would not have been found guilty. But I'm, I'm addressing right. the Chief Justice's concern with how we translate that uh, guilt-innocence exception into the penalty phase. Mm -hmm. And we're suggesting that although our standard, the standard that we advocate, is the Kuhlman standard, that an appropriate standard might indeed be, the more probable than not, the strict outcome determinative standard that uh, the dissenters in the 11th Circuit suggested was appropriate. Into the penalty phase at all. I mean, why? Uh, I, had, I had thought that we're, we're making an exception for, for compelling circumstances to our normal rules that you've had a fair trial and that's the end of the matter. And when we've said, you know, when, why isn't it reasonable to say, well, if in fact you weren't guilty of the crime, that, that's, that's an extraordinary circumstance. But you're, you're saying, even if you are guilty of the crime, you might have gotten a lesser sentence. I, I don't find that as extraordinary a, a circumstance at all. Well, Justice Scalia, just as we have a right to have a fair trial under uh, this court's jurisprudence, there was uh, an equally strong right to a fair sentencing hearing. Well, that's certainly not our jurisprudence uh, in, in most areas. You, you wouldn't be making this argument if he got 50 years instead of 10 years, would you? No, we wouldn't, because we're talking now about a fundamentally different sort of proceeding. And we're talking about a proceeding where the stakes are not whether he goes to prison or not, or the degree or length of a period of incarceration. We're talking about whether or not a person will live or die. And this Court has noted uh, in its jurisprudence since Gregg itself that death is a qualitatively different kind of punishment than any other punishment that can be doled out by a sentencing judge in the United States of America. And again, I think that if we reference the facts of this case, all reasonable people would agree that it's fundamentally unfair that Robert Sawyer has not at least had a chance to put before some tribunal um, his severe and crippling mental disabilities and have a tribunal 
at least evaluate whether or not if that evidence had been presented, the jury may have voted for it. Well, I agree that death is different from other punishments, but so is punishment different from, from, so is the nature of the punishment different from the question of innocence. And uh, up to now, our cases uh, have only held that uh, if you are innocent, uh, can you uh, can you have a second trial? And, and you're urging us uh, to carry that over into a whole new area uh, where you are not innocent, but you say I should not have gotten as severe a penalty as I did. Even if I acknowledge that death is a different penalty, I don't know why that compels me to uh, uh, to say that uh, this particular doctrine should be extended from from innocence over to penalty. Well. My reading of Smith, Justice Scalia, is that that's a settled question. Uh, I, I don't agree with you on that. Uh, it seems to me there is language in Smith and language in a con- that are, is fairly ambiguous. It's, you certainly can't say it's settled the other way. But uh, I, for one, don't regard it as settled, it contrary to Justice Scalia's view. Well, I might say that this court, uh, in its guilt phase miscarriage cases, has indicated that what is important in that context in assessing innocence is whether or not inaccurate evidence with regard to culpability was put before uh, the jury. Um, Our standard adopts that concept and inquires as to whether or not false, inaccurate, or misleading evidence relative to culpability was put before a sentencing jury. Uh, uh, Perhaps a look at the court's... Can you tell me, how how is your uh, proposed standard uh, different from our usual harmless error inquiry? I, I take it it's somewhat heightened... It's the one you propose? Yes, Your Honor. It's radically heightened from the um, harmless air standard, and more importantly, the burden falls on the petitioner and not the state in this instance. The burden is not on the state to show, to show that there's no reasonable... But is the standard the same? No, the standard is not the same. The standard is not the same under either our proposal or the proposal which we also endorse out of the 11th Circuit. And fundamentally, more important, again, it's the petitioner's burden. Um, and not the burden of the state to show that the error had no effect. Perhaps I might briefly discuss this Court's uh, Eighth Amendment jurisprudence because hopefully, Justice Scalia, it will answer your concern. We believe that as a construction of death innocence, eligibility is is a fundamentally flawed concept because it collides with the Eighth Amendment's core concern of individualized sentencing. Implicit in the concept of eligibility is that Anyone who is a member of a legislatively defined death-eligible class is deserving of punishment and that, therefore, no fundamental injustice can occur by executing anyone within that class, deserving not only of punishment but deserving of the death penalty. Now, of course, this validates the Eighth Amendment's uh, narrowing function, the firm in half, but it is utterly unfaithful to the Eighth Amendment's core consideration of individualized sentencing. In our view, the problem with eligibility is a problem with the mandatory death penalty statutes this court struck down 15 years ago. This court struck those statutes down because they negated the individual worth of a human being. This court struck those statutes down. The principle that emerged from those holdings is that uh, a capital defendant must be treated as an individual. And, of course, that is recognized... It, it violates that, but the, the question isn't whether you're entitled to individualized sentencing. The question is whether you're entitled to two swings at it. Uh, just as in, in other cases, uh, when there's any violation of law in, in the first trial, the question isn't whether you were entitled to whatever that violation of law denied you. Of course you are, by definition. But the question we're, we're, we're speaking to today is whether 
having through your own fault not made that uh, that assertion at the first trial, you're entitled to, to have a second trial. And we do that when you're innocent. Uh, that's clear. But you're saying we should also do it when you've gotten too high a sentence, at least where that sentence is the death sentence. Well, I'm not saying that we should do it when we have too high a sentence at all. I'm saying that we do it when the death penalty has been imposed. I'm saying that there should be... Um, and admittedly, it will be a very, very rare, small universe of cases, but that there is that universe of cases where a jury was so radically misinformed, like in this case, as to the petitioner's individual culpability, that it would be a fundamental miscarriage of justice not to allow a petitioner to litigate the merits of a claim that addresses that issue. There may be a small universe of cases where it's true, but there won't be a small universe of cases where it's litigated. It'll be litigated fully in every capital case. Well, sure. I think that uh, our district courts can dispose of these claims quickly on the paper if a very strong threshold showing is not made. I might also I'm not point sure out about that, counsel. It, it seems to me that in, in this case, in order to adjudicate the right to file the second habeas uh, under your standard, uh, you would have to go through an inquiry which is uh, just as extensive uh, as ruling on the merits. I, it would seem to me that you would have to have uh, a full and complete record and review of that record just in order to determine whether or not the exception applies. Well, I would disagree. Again, Justice Kennedy, I think that um, a district judge could winnow out the huge majority of filings under this under the standard that we propose uh, on the paper, no hearing, no stay. Well, you say on you mean like the state court did on the success? Yes, exactly. The state. No, court. I know, but the, the state court winnowed out, but you weren't satisfied with that. Well, you presented the same claim to the to in the second habeas proceeding in the state, didn't it? That's correct. Mm -hmm. And the state court has seemed apparently winnowed it out. Well, that's correct, Justice White. That's why we're in federal court. And you think you have a constitutional right to a hearing that the state court denied? That's correct. Mm -hmm. Well, now, to, so, so let's take this in the real world that we deal with all the time and you deal with all the that maybe the day the execution is set, the lawyer comes in for Mr. Sawyer, Mr. ABC, and says, I have this claim under Sawyer against Whitley, which has been re resolved in your favor, let's assume. I can show it's more probable than not that the jury would have come out the other way. Here are five affidavits. The district judge is sitting there. The execution is scheduled for that night. What does he do? Well, the claim is filed in... If the claim is not made out on the face well, of the pleadings, it's, it's, you, you've got to do some weighing of the various affidavits. You've got to determine whether it's more likely than not the jury would have come out the other way. The, the, this is really not a paper shuffle, I wouldn't think. Well, first of all, I would say that you, know, you can't keep people from knocking at the door. If there's an eligibility standard, there will be filings. I'm sorry? Well, you can narrow the door, no question about it. But there will be filings under eligibility. There will be filings under the actual innocence to the crime exception. The question a moment ago was apropos. You know, why didn't you make a challenge to uh, the state's uh, burden of proof on its element to prove mens rea? But the number of elements that go into innocence of the crime are relatively limited. The number of elements that go into whether you, it's more likely than not that you would have gotten a lighter sentence or a sentence less than death are, God, in, innumerable. So, I mean, it, it, it's not just, uh, you know, opening the door another crack. It's, uh, it's a substantial extension. 
Well, I'm not so sure it's as substantial as the court, uh, as Your Honor, feels it is. Again, I think that the, the claim itself is a factually very narrow claim. And if a, if, an, if a federal district judge looks at the claim and there's no showing that the sentencing profile was radically distorted, it's dismissed on the merits that quickly. If a judge well, I, doesn't I have, have to say, Mr. Walker, listening to your argument today um, and your uh, uh, very moving description of, of, of Sawyer's condition, I would have to read uh, the, sentence, uh, the, the transcript of the trial itself of the sentencing hearing and all of the affidavits and all of the submissions before I could pass on the validity and the strength of your argument. I'll answer that and then reserve the rest of my time. At least in the Fifth Circuit, that's not a problem, Justice Kennedy, because the same panels remain on the cases as they proceed from one rib to the next, if it goes that far. Um, before you sit down, counsel, I want to ask uh, whether um, it isn't appropriate that in this particular context, where you're looking for an exception on, on the successive habeas petition, that you apply a standard that is tougher than the standard that would be applied the first time around. Oh, something more. Absolutely, just Something so. more than harmless error, something more than the, the Strickland prejudice standard. That's and correct. I don't see that in your proposal. Well, that is in our proposal, I believe. It's the strict outcome determinative test, again, that uh, Your Honor, in writing for the, the Strickland court, noted was a much stricter test than the reasonable probability test. We think that that would satisfy the state's interest in finality. It seems to me, counsel, that, uh, that even if you <coughs> prevail, uh, I would think the, the, the maximum that we should do is to remand to the state court to have the hearing that was denied to you in the federal courts. Okay. Not have the hearing in the federal court at all. Well, if the court chooses to remand it to the state court, that's fine as well. We think the proper remand would be to the, uh, to the district court. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Walker. Uh, Ms. Pendergast, we'll hear from you. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The uh, State of Louisiana endorses the Fifth Circuit's definition of actual innocence of the death penalty and urges this Court to adopt that definition at the very least. Since Louisiana narrows... When you say at the very least, Ms. Pendergast, I think the Solicitor General here has perhaps taken a narrower position than the Fifth Circuit take. Do you agree with that position as an alternative? I do agree with it because de uh, Louisiana narrows the class of uh, persons eligible for the death penalty at the definitional stage. So it really is uh, the Solicitor General's definition is a workable and acceptable definition to the state of Louisiana. And I propose to de defend the Fifth Circuit's definition and allow Mr. Larkin to defend the Solicitor General's definition. This Court has said that actual innocence uh, does not translate easily into the penalty phase of a capital trial. And in reality, the Eighth and Ninth Circuit's definition and Mrs. Mr. Sawyer's proposed definition do not translate at all into the penalty phase of a capital trial because their definitions concentrate on uh, discretionary factors. And the penalty phase of a capital trial, that is the wrong question to ask of any sentencing hearing. A sentencing is a societal response to what the sentencer heard. The sentencer not only heard what went on at the penalty phase of the trial, but the sentencer heard the gruesome details of the trial, of the crime at trial. 
And his evaluation is the discretionary process, and he brings a certain set of uh, values and a certain background to that evaluation. And the resulting sentence is his societal response. You cannot be innocent of a societal response. You can only be innocent of objective factors such as guilt or innocence of a crime. The state's uh, uh, obligation is just to prove the elements of the crime. In the guilt phase. And then when we come to the penalty phase, we have certain objective factors, which oh, are I the know, aggravating but, but factors. When does one in Louisiana become eligible for the death penalty? Actually, um, you are tried... When, you're, when you prove him guilty of a capital of, offense? Of the first-degree murder. A first-degree murder is, uh, at the definitional stage, defines those crimes and the... Uh, even uh, you go on trial for first-degree murder and you have death or life as a possible uh, penalty. And so um, you, uh, you uh, eliminate the necessity to, in, in, in defining eligibility, you just don't think about whether there's an aggravating circumstance. Then when we go Is to that the, right? Is that right? Uh, in Louisiana, yeah. we have to have an aggravating circumstance. Before there's eligibility for the death sentence? And, but that's built into the definition of first-degree murder. Aggravating circumstance. And then when you go to the penalty phase, the jury is, is told to that they have to find at least one aggravating circumstance beyond a reasonable doubt. And then uh, they are to consider the mitigating circumstances to determine whether death is the appropriate sentence. And my but they're eligible for, the, uh, eligible for the death penalty before you ever get to the uh, sentencing. Yes, phase. by the definitional stage, actually. I, uh, the state of Louisiana clearly supports the Fifth Circuit view because the Fifth Circuit is concerned with the eligibility, which are uh, at the death penalty phase, and that those are objective standards to which we can measure something. Where Sawyer's uh, proposed definition is unclear, the standard is unclear, and it does not go to any objective factors which can be measured. What he actually is asking this court to do is to bypass the cause prong of cause and prejudice and have a mere prejudice test because he does, does not implicate the objective factors at the penalty phase of the trial. If we, that, may I just ask you, do you think under the normal cause and prejudice jurisprudence that the prejudice, cause, uh, prejudice prong of the test is not satisfied unless the defendant shows that it was more probable than not that the verdict would have been different? The prejudice prong of the cause, at the, and we're talking about the guilt phase? Yes. How much, pre, you know, how much prejudice is, what is the standard for prejudice under the cause and prejudice, uh, normal cause and prejudice law under your view? Does it require the defendant to convince the trier of fact that it would be more probable than not that he would not have been convicted? I, I could not be certain of the precise language. Because if you don't say that's the same, then you are, then there's a difference between the prejudice standard and the standard your opponent is advocating. Maybe it's not sufficient to justify it, but at least there is some difference. In, in my opinion, the difference is merely a matter of semantics, that it's a nebulous position, because we can't ever judge it. We produce so much, we're, and also we're talking about well, second federal habeas, your, the cause and prejudice uh, jurisprudence has to do 
with procedural default and abuse of the writ on first federal habeas. But now we're talking about second federal habeas. Shouldn't we make the standard even more strict than on first federal habeas? I think everybody agrees, and I think your opponent agrees with that. And the question is whether the standard he proposes is more more, uh, stringent than than the normal prejudice standard. And I did not understand until this argument that normally the prejudice prong cannot be satisfied unless the defendant proves that it's more probable than not that he would have been acquitted. I thought there could be prejudice that's significant, but not quite that significant. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Uh, Your Honor, I would have to check myself on the uh, precise language of more probable than not. not, Your position is not, or or is it, that cause and prejudice inquiry is irrelevant in uh, determining whether or not a habeas petition should be filed when it uh, uh, attacks a ruling in the sentencing phase? My position is that the uh, attacking a ruling in the sentencing phase on a second federal habeas should only go to the objective factors that go to the actual innocence of the person, to the objective factors found that make this person eligible for the death penalty. If we go beyond that, we are getting into the discretionary nature of the sentencing phase. We don't even have a cause and prejudice inquiry initially, in your view, if the sentencing is what is involved. Well... Yes, that's right. He's already, he's already admitted that there is no, if we don't, if, if he satisfies cause and prejudice, we don't even get to the actual innocence. We only get there because he cannot satisfy well, cause but, and prejudice. But I'm, it seems to me that what you're saying is that even in the cause and prejudice phase, this initial threshold determination that prejudice is somehow unworkable as a standard when you're talking about a sentencing hearing. That's what I am saying. I am saying it is un- unworkable unless you look at only objective factors that make him eligible for the death penalty. Because what we're let, we're, we would be doing is looking at the discretionary area. We don't even do that at the guilt phase under a Jackson versus Virginia an- analysis. When we review a guilt phase for sufficiency of evidence, we only look at the elements of the crime in the light most favorable to the prosecution. So we go to the penalty phase. How can we then... It's a lesser standard to look at anything beyond the eligibility factors at the penalty phase. Is this, is this the position of the Fifth Circuit? Uh, as a matter of fact, the Fifth Circuit did uh, talk about the Jackson versus Virginia and the core concern of Jackson that we not invade the discretionary area. But is, it, is, 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 is it the Fifth Circuit uh, rule that, uh, that uh, unless you show that ineligibility for the death penalty that the Successive petition should be denied. Yes, that's the position of the uh, that the uh, error must go to the eligibility yes. of the defendant for the death penalty. What it boils down to, I suppose, is the error must relate to an aggravating circumstance. Errors relating to exclusion of mitigating circumstances could never justify a second habeas. Isn't that, I think that's what I think that's what the Fifth Circuit proposes. Absolutely. Even if it were clear, even if the trial judge were willing to say, "I'm convinced beyond a reasonable doubt." that if the jury had had this mitigating evidence, they never would have returned the death penalty. Your position would still be that's just too bad. Yes, I do. Yes. And I think this is clearly supported by Duggar versus Adams, where, where this court said that a Caldwell error is no cause for a procedural default. And a Caldwell error goes to the accuracy of the sentencing, sentencing determination. Also, uh, a definition, as Sawyer proposes, would play havoc with Sawyer versus Smith, which over, said that uh, a Caldwell era, era could not be applied retroactively. And I think by adopting a type of definition 
that the Eighth and Ninth Circuit propose or that Sawyer proposes would create confusion in the jurisprudence of federal habeas in the retroactivity cases under Teague versus Lane. I, I take it you, uh, you th- Louisiana is not a balancing state, or is it? No, it is not a balancing state. We do not weigh the aggravating and mitigating circumstances. You think, uh, you, think it, uh, you think it would come out differently in a balancing state? Uh, where, where the jury's instructed to say that unless there are mitigating factors uh, that overpower the aggravating? Uh, no, I think that we are t- that should, if it comes out on first federal habeas, that's one thing. But when we come to the second federal habeas, we must narrow that review and that application of actual innocence even more to objective factors and just eliminate the discretionary so you factors. You're arguing for a position that you think would apply in a balancing state, too. Yes, I do. Yes. Um, and I think we have to look to uh, the fact that Sawyer's definition, he tries to eliminate and narrow it by saying that prophylactic rules not bearing on culpability would not qualify. But I, perhaps we would have increased litigation to define what prophylactic rules would bear on culp- culpability. His ineffective assistance of counsel would be eliminated except in rare cases. I can see that there would be further litigation and successive petitions to define what are the rare cases that would qualify for ineffective assistance of counsel. His miscarriage of justice standard includes only those uh, errors which, where the jury heard false evidence or were precluded from hearing true mitigating facts. His standard overrules McCleskey insofar as McCleskey set the standard for a miscarriage of justice by saying that Miscarriage of justice is not promoted by just mere error, not mere constitutional error, and not mere prejudicial constitutional error, but prejudicial constitutional error that goes to guilt or innocence. And when we translate that into the penalty phase, it can only be done with any kind of uh, reasoning if we adopt a, a test like the Fifth Circuit that goes to the eligibility of the defendant for the death penalty, which implicates only objective factors. Any other definition, any broader definition, will violate the concerns of finality of state court convictions because it will be only increased litigation in the federal habeas area, and it will violate the concerns of comedy and between the state and federal courts. I think it's important to remember that what we are talking about is that this is a second federal habeas petition, that the standard of review should be more strict than on the first federal habeas petition, and the actual innocence should be limited to only those extraordinary cases where the defendant would be actually innocent or not eligible to have the death penalty imposed. And I think it's important to remember that we are talking about a sentencing hearing where there is no correct outcome, and that this is a discretionary area, and we cannot allow a federal court to reweigh mitigating evidence and substitute its judgment and its reweighing for the state sentencer or the state, the highest court in a state. This violates the core concerns of comedy between state and federal courts. Uh, 
Stoya mistakenly has claimed that the state must prove that death is the appropriate penalty in his in his brief, and I w- want to remind, uh, point out to this court that Louisiana uh, does not require the state to prove that death is an appropriate penalty. That Louisiana only requires, after a conviction of first-degree murder, that the state prove an aggravating circumstance beyond a reasonable doubt, and then the jury is charged to consider the mitigating evidence or mitigating circumstances and to determine whether death is appropriate. So the only thing that the state has to prove is one aggravating circumstance beyond a reasonable doubt. Louisiana Louisiana is not a weighing state, and additional facts and mitigation would not be a a substantial consequence uh, for the reviewing court in Louisiana. Let's look at the facts that Sawyer proposes here to support his miscarriage of justice claim. He uh, has the mental defect, the abuse of childhood, the jury heard in a skeletal, skeletal form most of the information that Sawyer now proposes. We have to remember that Sawyer testified at the penalty phase of the trial. He testified to the murder of the four-year-old child in Arkansas. He testified to his childhood and his upbringing. And he testified to, to the crime that he was intoxicated and could only remember bits and pieces The jury did have an opportunity to see him, to evaluate him, and decide for themselves what sort of mental defect or slow learner he might have been. But your position would be the same even if the jury had not heard that evidence? Uh, Yes, it would. My position is the same, yes. Uh, Even if the state deliberately conceals some, uh, some some mitigating evidence that the defendant didn't know about? If the mitigating evidence does not go to the objective factors on second federal habeas, I think his, his big reason... Well, I would think it would be on first federal habeas, too. I, don't I, I think there's a burden there that they do it on first federal <laughs> yes. habeas. And also, on the, I would think you would say that the state court was uh, in, in uh, first or second state habeas would come out with the same ruling you would. Well, you're right. Even if, even if the state deliberately conceals some mitigating evidence. If the mitigating evidence didn't go to the actual innocence. Yeah, well, it, well, it, the mitigating evidence was mitigating evidence, though, that the jury would have been entitled to listen to. But And the state deliberately conceals it. I would think you would say you have to come out the same way. Excuse me, Your Honor, I, I don't understand. You're asking me a question? Yes, I am. The, the, state, uh, the state deliberately conceals some mitigating evidence that surely if the defendant had known about, it would have put before the jury. I think the question is, does that mitigating evidence go to, um, you know, his early childhood? It doesn't, go to any, it doesn't go to the proof of an aggravating circumstance. Then I, I don't think that should necessarily trigger a review or okay. remand. But now the rule would be different in first federal habeas, yes. wouldn't it? Yes, uh, there, it would. there you could show something that went to, right. went to the sentence. And if, if it was material, uh, you would probably get some, some relief. We have to be conscious that the Brady claim that, uh, that petitioner puts forth here is not supported by admissible evidence. It's based on double and triple hearsay and that the time that he has waited to put forth this evidence in front of the court casts doubt on its credibility. Yes, but again, even if, if that were true, if it were direct, not hearsay evidence, if it was totally credible, it'd still be tough luck. On second federal habeas, uh, yes. Yeah. Otherwise, you have no distinction between first and, and second federal habeas. Well. Or, we have to remember also that the, um, 
that Sawyer could be charged and convicted as a principal in Louisiana, that he admitted to hitting Fran Allwood and admitted to hitting her uh, twice, causing her to bleed from her mouth. He had the key to the door, the deadbolt, in his pocket. He ordered Cindy and the two boys to the bedroom. He had admitted being in the bathroom where she hit her head on the bathroom on the tub and lost consciousness. He admitted to being there when detergent uh, and scalding water was poured over her. He never denied participation in this crime. He never denied that his fingerprints were found on the lighter fluid can. He only said that he was intoxicated and could only remember bits and pieces. And I urge this court to adopt the Fifth Circuit definition because any broader definition would overrule McCleskey, lend credibility to last-minute hearsay affidavits, lend credibility to physical and mental examinations done today and applied to yesterday, and buy into a distortion of the record and sanction sandbagging. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Pendergast. Uh, Mr. Larkin, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I would like first to answer Justice Stevens' question. Your Honor asked whether the more likely than not standard applied to the prejudice prong of the Sykes cause and prejudice test, and in our view, the answer is yes. That's our understanding of it. At page 14 of our amicus brief, we cite and excerpt some of the relevant portions of this Court's discussion in Frady, which was later reiterated again in Carrier. And what the Court said there was, in order to show prejudice, you have to show not merely the possibility of an error, but that something worked to the actual and substantial disadvantage of the defendant. And as we've read that, it seems to indicate that the, court, the defendant has to show it's more likely than not that he was prejudiced. Well, by you it. would agree, though, something could be to the actual and substantial disadvantage of a defendant without it also necessarily being true that the verdict would more likely than not have been different. That could, but then you also have to keep in mind the other part of the court's discussion in these cases, which is the cause and prejudice test is stricter than the plain error test. Now, you could have a plain error that doesn't prejudice the jury's verdict, but it seems to us that if you're having something stronger than the plain error test in the prejudice component, in light of also the discussion of the way you've described it in cases of Frady and Carrier, we've always thought that it really requires a more likely than not showing by someone. More likely than not of a substantial disadvantage or more likely than not that the result would have been different? The latter, Your Honor. More likely than not that the result would have been different. And do you see any problem with applying that analysis uh, when the challenge is to something in the sentencing phase, to an error in the sentencing phase? Not on the first federal habeas petition, Your Honor, but here we think where the second petition is involved, that is a wholly inadequate basis. For example, the Eighth and Ninth Circuits made no effort in their opinions in the cases we've cited in our brief, to reconcile how they described the actual innocence doctrine with the way this Court has described the actual prejudice element of the Wainwright versus Sykes test. And we think that really can't be reconciled. In fact, the petitioner, by essentially abandoning the Eighth and Ninth Circuit's approach, has virtually conceded that point. What petitioner has tried to do is limit, by limiting the types of claims that supposedly can be raised, the effect that would, there would be on the operation of habeas corpus if you adopted the Eighth and Ninth Circuit test. In essence, he has said you should limit that test to Brady claims and mitigating evidence claims. And we think the only virtue of that limitation is that it fits the facts of his case. 
in effect, any claim that... But doesn't succeed in making second, second federal habeas any different from first federal habeas with respect to those particular claims. You betcha. That's absolutely right. And we think this Court's decision in Duggar versus Adams is inconsistent with that type of approach. So we think the standard petitioner has adopted uh, clearly is inconsistent with what this Court has already decided in Duggar and with the approach this Court has followed and with the policy concerns that led this Court to adopt the ruling last term in McCleskey. We agree with the Fifth and Eleventh Circuits that there should be an eligibility approach. We just differ. Well, you suggested, I thought, a a still different test, one that goes to actual innocence of the the substantive offense. That's right. We we just focus the eligibility a little differently, Your Honor, in that sense. And I'm not sure your test would take into account in any event the differences among the states in capital sentencing structure. Louisiana is one type of state, uh, which has narrowed the eligibility in a certain way, but there are different types of schemes. And has any court adopted the test that you suggest? No, Your Honor. Uh, The Fifth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit didn't, and neither the Eighth and Ninth. Uh, So it is, in fact, our proposal that we are putting forward to you today, because this will affect federal cases as well as state ones. But the approach we put forward can be applied across the board, whether you're in a state like Louisiana, which does the narrowing at the gill stage, or whether you're in a state like Georgia, for example, that does it later at the sentencing stage. Our position is this. If it def- Balancing requirement or not. Absolutely, which is a case like Mississippi. Our position is very simple. If a defendant is convicted of a crime for which the death penalty constitutionally may be imposed, he is not actually innocent of that sentence. In other words, if a court has before it findings that are adequate under this court's decision in Tyson to allow the death penalty to be imposed, the defendant is not actually innocent of the death penalty. And that approach is one that can be applied by district courts across the board in Georgia, in Louisiana, or in Mississippi. It doesn't Basic, matter. Basically, it removes the distinction between capital and non-capital cases. It does it by making sure that what you have is a proportionality test. In a non-capital case, if a defendant were convicted of a crime for which the type of sentence he's challenging could not be imposed under this Court's decision in Harmelin, then he can bring that type of actual innocence claim. We are, if you will, obliterating that distinction. We don't think that's inconsistent with the way this Court has approached it, because after all, in Smith and Murray, the Court said it refused to adopt special cause and prejudice rules simply because there was a capital case at issue. In fact, we think what we've got here is a system that will adequately work and solve the problems that some people from the bench have mentioned with how to dispose of these cases on the day an execution is scheduled to go forward. you, You say if the Court has before it findings that the defendant was guilty of a capital-eligible offense. Do you mean by that a jury verdict? Yeah, the, the, if the jury verdict is going to contain with it, under the statute, the elements of the offense. And in, in virtually every state, murder, for example, is going to be the capital crime. There are a few states that have well, other... So, supposing a defendant comes in on second federal habeas with uh, some rather convincing showing that a witness was uh, prevented from appearing at the trial... Uh, and that the witness would have testified that he was 10,000 miles away. Well, he can show, if he can show he didn't do it, then he's actually innocent of the crime, not just the sentence. Well, then, so the, the jury verdict could be upset on that sort of a showing, I take it. Absolutely. My, my earlier comment, Your Honor, was when he comes in challenging only the sentence. 
If someone can come in and show that he didn't do it, then he is actually innocent in the sense that everyone, I think, universally agrees. And in that sense, of course, he's entitled to relief, too. But that is how you should narrow... He's not eligible to the death penalty or any other penalty. He's he's not eligible for a fine, for a sentence or imprisonment for anything. But he he would have to tie the... uh, uh, the evidence he's relying to some sort of a constitutional violation. Correct. Uh, in this sort of context, unless you can show something like that, you can't come into federal court. If he has other claims that he can raise, a state law claim, he can go back to the state courts because it, the, this court has made clear in Estelle versus McGuire only earlier this term that you can't raise state law claims in the federal courts. So he has to tie it to a federal constitutional claim. Now, as we said, we think there are several principles that support this. First, the court has made clear in Gregg, in Tyson, and McCleskey one, that the death penalty can be imposed for the crime of intentional homicide. Second, the court has made clear that aggravating factors serve a valuable function at sentencing, but they do not define the elements of capital murder. Third, the court has made clear in a case involving this very state's capital sentencing laws, Lowenfield versus Phelps, that whatever essential predicates are necessary under Tyson or the other cases for the imposition of the death penalty to be lawful, those predicates can be established at the guilt stage. They don't need to be established at sentencing. And finally, we think that given the fact that at this stage, the state's judgment should not only be presumed to be correct, but given the fact that federal habeas has once gone through and completed without finding any material errors, that the presumption should be virtually irrebuttable at this point, we think it's appropriate to focus on the question whether the prisoner has committed an offense for which the death penalty can be imposed. After all, aggravating factors are that. They aggravate the crime. If the crime of murder can be punished by death, and this court has repeatedly held that it can be, we think at this stage of the case it is unnecessary to expand the limited actual innocence exception to take into account these other types of factors. Unless the court... I don't know why it has to be extended to take into account the penalty phase at all. Well, it could, Your Honor. That's, that would even be a narrower position than we had urged. You could just drop it out. And that's consistent with every holding in this court. Smith and Murray and McCleskey and Duggar never granted relief on this exception, and so there is no holding of this court that would apply the actual innocence exception to a sentence at all. But we haven't gone quite that far. If it is disproportionate under the Eighth Amendment, we would say that you are therefore not eligible for that sentence, and it should not be imposed. What what should be the standard for uh, applying the actual innocence exception in the guilt phase? Uh, there's a sense that there has to be something new and dramatic, or you have the wrong man or something. But, uh, what, what would you think that the test ought to be there? Your Honor, you, you could, in essence, flip around what happens at trial. Uh, there, there's a presumption of innocence, and the state has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant did it. To show actual innocence, you could flip it around at the habeas stage, put the presumption on the prisoner, and sh- require him to show that he didn't do it. Now, you could require it by a preponderance, by clear and convincing, which is close to beyond a reasonable doubt, or beyond a reasonable doubt. The latter, of course, would be the stiffest, stiffest, but in this context, it wouldn't be an irrational way to proceed. What is the government's position on the proper standard? Well, we have not in our brief laid out which of those three approaches to take. Rather important point, isn't it? It it is, but it it has not yet, in our view, ever been dispositive in any case. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Larkin. Mr. Walker, you have four minutes remaining. First, for Justice O'Connor's benefit, um, the more likely than not standard, which we endorse, is located on page three of our reply brief in note one, and also um, the amicus brief filed on our behalf by the Legal Defense Fund discusses that test extensively beginning on page 40. Secondly, 
This jury heard no evidence whatsoever about Sawyer's mental retardation or even his low intelligence and certainly heard nothing about organic brain damage. Third, I believe that we've heard here a concession that uh, Wainwright versus Sykes prejudice is a lesser showing than the prejudice uh, inquiry that we're advocating here. Uh, the Sykes prejudice is that uh, the error worked to, to the petitioner's actual and substantial disadvantage. Justice Stevens, I disagree that you may not have to show that the outcome would have been different in that situation. In our situation, you do. But primarily what I want to address for the minutes remaining is Smith versus Murray, and I simply disagree that Smith versus Murray does not categorically hold that the actual innocence exception applies in capital sentencing proceedings. What Smith said was, may not be easy to translate, but it does. Now, the court found no reason to do it in that case because Mr. Smith had a claim of legal innocence, not actual innocence. Uh, in terms of the holding, the holding of that case is purely expressed in this sentence. In short, the error neither precluded the development of true facts nor resulted in the admission of false ones. We have an error that did preclude um, the development of true facts. Constitutional ineffective assistance of counsel meant that the jury never heard Robert Sawyer was mentally retarded and brain damaged. It also resulted in the admission of false facts. That evidence was that Robert Sawyer is a sociopath. We think we squarely fit within Smith versus Murray, and it would be a gross fundamental miscarriage of justice to not give Robert Sawyer a hearing on the claims he's presented in a successive habeas corpus petition. If there are no further questions, uh, Thank you, Mr. Walker. The, the Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock. <laughs>